In fact, I'll be working with a somewhat different iteration of these ideas as they appear in another text. But I want to begin with this list because it suggests something of the absurdity of a theory of distraction. For a writer to pay attention to their own distraction would seem to be a contradiction in terms. And when we pay attention to the distraction of others, we learn which behaviors we associate with distraction, independent of whether or not the people we're observing feel distracted. In this way, the physiology of distracted, as postulated by Benjamin, already seems to require a phenomenological approach. In what follows, I hope to suggest that the paradox of attending to distraction is a paradox we can profitably inhabit. But I should say, here and now, that this conclusion, while not inevitable, is certainly anticipated by my approach. In contrast, Benjamin's other theory of distraction, this memory aid in the form of a list, suggestive as it is, but also incomplete, exemplifies distraction while remaining open to other potential forms of distracted experience. Nonetheless, in the Harvard edition of Benjamin's work, there is a footnote only three words into this fragment, and those three words are theory of distraction, and then we get this footnote. That footnote redirects us to another more familiar essay, the work of art in the age of its technological reproducibility. Here, the ideas that Benjamin alludes to in his list are given a more systematic formulation in the context of his other ideas about art. Near the end of the work of art essay, section, which is section 18 in the second version, and section 15 of the more familiar version that appears in Illumination. Um, near the end of the essay, there is a passage largely devoted to architecture, in which Benjamin approaches the distinction between concentration and distraction, using examples that each play with the relationship between space and surface. First, concentrated engagement is associated with painting and sculpture, and he typifies this engagement under the notion of absorption. In the case of the masses, the artwork is seen as a means of entertainment, but in the case of the art lover, it is considered an object of devotion. A person who concentrates before a work of art is absorbed by it. He enters into the work just as, according to legend, a Chinese painter entered his completed painting while beholding it. In contrast, Benjamin points to architecture as an artwork that is received in a twofold manner. This is all Benjamin. Uh, received in a twofold manner by use and by perception. Or, better, tactilely and optically, such reception cannot be understood in terms of the concentrated traveler before the famous building. On the tactile side, there is no counterpart to what contemplation is on the optical side. Tactile reception comes about not so much by way of attention as by way of habit. The latter largely determines even the optical reception of architecture, which spontaneously takes the form of casual noticing rather than attentive observation. To be clear, it is not that the tactile is opposed to the optical. Instead, in the work of architecture, the optical and the tactile are seen to function in unison. However, it is worth re reflecting for a moment on our actual experience with the architectural spaces we habitually encounter. Our motion through familiar architectures involves a rather limited tactility. Our footsteps touch the floor, our hands interact with doorknobs and handles, ele elevator buttons, and the handrails and stairwells. But as we move through architectural space, 
The point is precisely not to experience the walls that define that space and, the and which constrain the movement of our body. These surfaces are apprehended not tactilely, but visually, although this is a vision directed by the possibility of tactile experience. Exemplified most dramatically, for example, by walking into a wall. Ironically, the tact of moving through these spaces involves the avoidance of touch. Indeed, the surfaces we experience with our bodies more, most, sorry, more fully are those that are classified as furniture, and these are typically independent of architectural space. In short, the tactility in architecture is largely virtual. An undercurrent of touch accompanies our experience of architectural space, but our distracted and habitual movements in that space are governed by an only potential tactility that has been assimilated into vision. I like this rhythm that we're, that we're getting into. What Benjamin envisions, then, with his, distraction, with his distinction between contemplation and distraction are two modes of optical reception. The first strives for a pure optical encounter, a devotion to the artwork. The second arises through habit and tactility, where the perceiver is preoccupied with the routines of everyday life. But this latter distracted engagement can move from architecture to film to just another layer to this opposition, while contemplation turns surfaces into space into which the viewer may enter. Distraction allows spaces, urban, architectural, and otherwise, sorry, urban, architectural, and otherwise, the spaces of everyday life, to be projected onto a screen without the need to enter them. The familiar and the unfamiliar meet in an image. This, then, is another stage of the process of translation occurring between the senses, an extension of the process whereby the tactile reception of architecture took on an independent life in visual forms. This, trans this translation to the visible is, paradoxically, the result of a desire for tactility. As Benjamin writes, the aura's present decay rests on two circumstances, the desire of the present-day masses to get closer to things and their equally passionate concern for overcoming each thing's uniqueness by assimilating it as a reproduction. This desire to get closer is both a desire for the commodity and a desire for tactility. In the subsequent sentence, get closer becomes get hold of an object at close range. In essence, to reach out and touch it. But we also see a restructuring of touch through the proliferation of reproduction. It is not the particularity of the object that warrants touching, but the way in which the object is exemplary of other reproduction. Both tactility and vision are asked to apprehend an object in a limited or constrained particularity. And it is in this context that actual contact becomes unnecessary. Even a visual image can be representative of a tactile experience. Fortunately, there is another potentially positive side to these profound changes in apperception. Technological reproducibility may also change an extremely backward attitude toward painting into a highly progressive reaction to a film. Moreover, even the relationship between the masses in everyday life can be reorganized or extended by visual media, so that even habit is not above transformation. 
such instances of reorganization and extension are what Benjamin refers to as the optical unconscious, and here, too, tactility and movement are paramount. We are familiar with the movement of picking up a cigarette lighter or a spoon, but we know almost nothing about what really goes on between hand and metal, and still less how this varies with different moods. This is where the camera comes into play, with its resources for swooping and rising, disrupting and isolating, stretching or compressing a sequence, enlarging or reducing an object. It is through the camera that we first discover the optical unconscious, just as we discover the instinctual unconscious through psychoanalysis. In all these cases, Benjamin is interested in an exchange between established habits. Contemplation before painting is a habit which, as Sarah Ahmed would say, requires a certain orientation toward the artwork. And we might even say that recognition and distraction, as when we watch a film, is precisely a habit composed of other habits. So the optic, through the optical unconscious, distraction thus illuminates aspects of everyday life. That are presupposed, that are supposed through, sorry, uh, aspects of everyday life that are suppressed through routine. Through this, hold on, aspects of everyday life that are suppressed through routine, through the synesthesia that is facilitated by technologically mediated representations. I guess, yeah, this is a technologically mediated representation, and so it is appropriate. Um, in other words, distraction is formulated as a kind of exchange between sense experiences, and the optical unconscious redoubles such effects via technological mediation, and what we might call the habits of distraction that accompany such technologies. But even in its most elementary forms, distracted experience opens the way for reorganization of perception along lines that disrupt the pattern of contemplation, displacing a habit of the mind with one of the body. We might envision forms of distraction involving just one modality, just one form of sensory experience, as when some, something in our peripheral vision catches our attention, or when we're engaged in one conversation and distracted by another, or when we're giving a lecture in front of the way, in front of a beach, you know, <laughs> as now. Um, we might envision uh, why then, so, forms in which distraction occurs in only one modality, and only sound, and only sight, etc. Why, then, does Benjamin stress a twofold perception that, that bridges different senses? And why is tactility privileged as a catalyst of distraction, even in the case of cinema, where the media itself has no tactile component? In the first place, Benjamin is not interested in moments where we fail to maintain our attention which are perhaps what we most frequently associate with distraction, and certainly the mode of distraction most recognizable in others. Instead, Benjamin's distraction might be better characterized as a kind of divided attention, where multiple modes of sensory experience are allowed to interact and recombine. Even as, in the case of cinema, one of those modes is entirely learned, remembered, or virtual. It is the division between the senses that paves the way for divided yet simultaneous experiences. These channels of experience carry with them the possibility of attribution to a single source, but also to various sources, distributed across space, usually at different levels of proximity. 
Meanwhile, Touch, which has been singled out as the exemplary sense, by philosophers from Aristotle to Jean-Luc Nancy. Oh, I'm sorry. Sorry, flag. Um, from Aristotle to Jean-Luc Nancy is the one sense that we cannot turn off. And it is accompanied by a special reflexivity. Whenever I touch something, I simultaneously feel the pressure of my own touch. I touch myself touching, as Nancy would say, and touch whose organ is the entire surface of the human body is thus the one constant and inevitable experience. It is, it is the only constant undercurrent in our sensory experience, and thus it becomes a site to which other senses may affix themselves. Benjamin seems to suggest that attunement to multiple channels of experience is simply a product of the hurried and pressing nature of modern life. But as our beach setting demonstrates, these channels are also open in moments of relaxation. To be distracted does not necessarily mean to be in a hurry, and we can be distracted even when taking our time. Indeed, one of the more compelling aspects of this alliance between sight and touch is the way it creates a flexibility in temporal experience. As Susan Stewart writes, a key difference between the temporal immediacy of visual perception, oh sorry, yeah, a visual perception under the grid and single point perspective, and the spatial immediacy of tactile impressions is the latter's motility. To experience the toughness or smoothness of an object, to examine its physical position or come to understand its relative temperature or moistness. We must, we must move, turn, take time. Visual perception can immediately organize a field. Tactile perception requires temporal comparison. We may say, in fact, that visual perception becomes a mode of touching when comparisons are made and the eye is placed upon or falls upon relationships between phenomena. remarks on touch affirm Benjamin's link between tactility and a twofold perception, here characterized as a comparative perception. But her remarks also open up distracted experience to other frames of temporality. In Stewart's work, Benjamin's temporal associations have been inverted. Tactility is associated with the process of taking time, and vision is immediate as opposed to contemplative. Stewart's metaphor, in which comparative sight becomes a tactile sight, takes on a peculiar significance in the space of the gallery. As she later reminds us, both galleries and museums are institutions organized around an elaborately, ritual, an elaborately ritualized practice of refraining from touch. In fact, what distinguishes the architecture of a museum from its holdings is the, technology, the taxonomy of what can and cannot be touched. This leads to a familiar scene. In museums today, when we turn quickly from the untouchable artwork to the written account or explanation placed beside it, we pursue a connection no longer available to us, the opportunity to press against the work of art or valued object. While this claim may seem extravagant, we can find support for it in even the most minimal wall labels. Beyond the names of the artist and the artwork, we typically find a list of the materials used to compose it. The wall label thus suggests not only a tactile experience of materiality, which the viewer cannot have with the work, but also a tactile process through which the work was made, both of which 
for the viewer are entirely virtual. Finally, the artwork and its label occupy different positions in the visual field, and indeed often require different positions for viewing. The gallery is thus the place where Stewart's tactile sight actually functions in response to the desire for tactility. In this sense, the wall label becomes the most ubiquitous agent of distraction in the gallery. When we look to the wall label, our attention ceases to be devoted to the work as a visual phenomena, and instead, phenomenon, and instead we attempt to reconcile the list of materials with what is visible. But this is hardly a game-changing scenario. What the wall label typically gives us is a vocabulary for the concentrated engagement that Benjamin wants us to leave behind. And yet, the formal qualities of this engagement might still provide the basis for a distracted experience. Perhaps what needs to change is the content of the wall label, or even its situation in visual space. Of course, galleries already produce such texts in the form of catalog essays, but like the wall label, these essays often shirk their potential for distraction and reinforce the ideology of concentrated engagement, teaching us, indeed, the gallery essay is, by and large, a training ground for concentrated engagement, teaching us how to extract the ideological critique implicit in the artwork, and how the artwork should and should not be read. My own interest in these ideas stems from the work of Lisa Robertson, especially in a series of catalog essays she published as the Office for Self-Architecture. Robertson's essays differ from those catalog texts in that they never address the exhibited work directly and instead recombine their elements or themes in ways that are noticeably different from the artwork to which it responds. Take, for example, the essay entitled How to Color, which responds to Renee Van Holm's installation Taste, a 10 by 10 grid of colored discs in which each row represents popular color trends and interior decoration for one decade of the 20th century. At its most elementary, Taste spatializes color trends in 20th century interior design. Meanwhile, in Robertson's hands, Van Helm's installation becomes the basis for a meditation on Napoleonic uniforms, colors as a Viridian pharmacon, and color as a marker of permeability of spatial, political, and organic boundaries. There are obvious disjunctions here between the essay and the artwork perhaps most notably a historical disjunction. While the installation documents 20th century decor, the essay refers most frequently to 19th century histories and theories of color. On the one hand, Robertson's essay thus prompts the reader or viewer to extend Van Holm's grid to earlier decades. On the other hand, Robertson's essay also recounts the economic and political situations that regulate the, avail the availability of certain colors. And so the reader-viewer is also invited to imagine the conditions for the distribution and manufacture of each color in Van Holm's grid, as well as the scientific and technological conditions that would facilitate their reproduction. Of course, neither of these responses are entirely anticipated by Robertson's essay. In fact, both suggest themselves by way of analogy between the artwork and Robertson's writing. The first fits the content of the writing to the form of the work, the second fits the content of the work to the form of the writing. 
In this way, as Marina, as Marina Roy notes, Robertson's contributions to exhibition catalogs act as more of a supplement to the artwork, a reaction to the work with her own literary interests in mind, than as a critical interpretation of the artwork at hand. Laden with historical research, a sensuous and often strange language acts as a space of resistance. My question here would be resistance to what? In order to answer this question, I want to return to Robertson's text as a supplement. By refusing to address the artwork directly, yet publishing in a context where the artwork and the writing are assumed to be connected, the reader of Robertson's text can see closure in the artwork in a way that approaches in a way that approaches the condition of an allegory. But this search for closure, closure is perhaps only the reflection of the search for a tactile experience in the wall label or the catalog essay. In this case, no matter where we start, these movements become symmetrical. Both the writing and the artwork ask prompt for a closure that lies outside their respective forms, and more importantly, even outside their joint forms. If Robertson's text is indeed a space of resistance, it is resisting a political or cultural formation that lies outside of that space. And yet, and yet that we see it as a text of resistance suggests that it, however indirectly, brings the thing it resists into view. But Robertson is also resisting a concentrated engagement with the artwork. And there is a specific sense in which the distracted engagement she produces may be a more ethical alternative to traditional, uh, to traditional catalog essays. As W.J.T. Mitchell suggests in A Crisis and the Other, any verbal description of the artwork, any attempt to speak on the artwork's behalf, serves simultaneously to suggest or reaffirm the artwork's muteness, its inability to speak for itself. As Mitchell has shown, this dynamic is not an inevitable feature of verbal and visual representation, but an ideological construction. With more disturbing instantiations include figures who are seen and not heard, and historically this has included women um, and, and exoticized others in particular. Of course, this ideological construction is also a cultural reality. The fact is that most people, myself included, require these textual prostheses to begin an engagement with the artwork. Our habits of artistic engagement prevent us from asserting the narrative or symbolic import of a particular work of art without recourse to language. But essays like Robertson's may function to remind us that such an engagement is possible, that the artwork can articulate themes, themes and ideas that are only latent or indeterminate in the accompanying prose. By turning away from the artwork, there's a sense in which Robertson's prose gives it the opportunity to speak for itself. Sorry for the feedback there. Can I, can I abandon this maybe? Thank you. Do I have to continue? is noting that in, in a tactile apprehension of any object, um, we have to take time. Our, our hands, for example, or our body, whatever is co in contact with the object, 
had to take time to navigate and to span it. So there's this temporal component in touch, and what she's trying to do is draw an analogy between um, moving across the field of vision, looking comparatively, and that kind of tactile experience. So this is a problem that I often have when I, when I view art. When I view art in an exhibit, like going to the Vancouver Art Gallery, for example, is that I have this like, very, very innate desire to touch the art that I'm looking at and, and like feel it. And, because often it, it has you know, some sort of aspect that I want to touch. So how can we really fully absorb art when a lot of it is behind these sort of barriers that we can't actually like, feel or touch? And it can't be a tactile. Yeah, um, I mean, that's, that's, I think, that's more interesting to me in the context of a museum, maybe. Um, I mean, the, the thing is that, I guess, artworks that are created, I guess, in a contemporary setting, maybe, uh, there are artworks, obviously, that are created for us to touch them. Um, and those are, uh, and, you know, and then there are also works that were created historically not to be touched, I guess. In the museum, you'll occasionally come across an object, say, that was worn, or that was you, or like a weapon, whatever, uh, a jug, something that had a very practical purpose, and we can no longer have the the aesthetic experience with that object um, that we that the uh, the audience for, for which that object was created could have. Um, with more with with you know high art. And there's a kind of different dynamics going on where often the artwork is created without, with the understanding that we won't have that kind of experience. So there's a kind of different set of expectations that go into it. Uh, but certainly, yeah, the desire for tactility is present. And then, um, so one of the. We sort of have to formulate, like, that? Yeah, exactly. And in, so, many, in many ways, thinking about, even thinking about the way in which the work is made, which is often something that is related. Um, thinking about what the work is made of, those things all function as a substitute for that kind of engagement. But there's an extent, an extent to which that kind of aesthetic experience is just virtual, and that's, or that's how I see it anyway. Did I, did I answer your question before? Is that fine? Certainly, I mean, it's interesting, I mean, to take that very particularly into the work that I'm doing right now, my experience with these essays that I'm writing about, the catalog essays uh, of Lisa Robertson, often the book that I'm working with primarily is a reproduction of those essays all grouped together. Um, and then I've also had to then go back and seek out the original catalogs. Um, that were created for these exhibitions. And it's often startling to come across the work in a different textual form. Um, in particular, one of the essays, uh, which is called Doubt in the History of Scaffolding, um, is printed on these like slightly pink pages. And you can see in the, in the crease of the book, this, it starts to glow because of the, the color of the paper is. And it seems 
uh, and it seems to inflect certain aspects of that essay. Um, there's a there's a kind of subtle uh, metaphor. She takes up lingerie as a metaphor for architecture very early on, and it's something that I hadn't noticed before. And reading the book in this format, it suddenly seemed incredibly important, and, and that I needed to think be thinking about um, gender, but also about maybe um, you know maybe commodity fetishism even in that context. Um, so certainly, yeah, it, we're we're impacted by those things, and then we also lose them as these works are reproduced. Um, whether or not you can really, I mean, I think, you know, I was thinking about that, I guess, in terms of the way in which, you know, exhibitions come and go, and then the catalogs what remain afterwards. And so the catalog is already a kind of, um, be, or quickly becomes a virtual experience for the exhibition. Um, and a, a lot of going to read these catalogs involves seeing different photos of the artwork. You might already be familiar with the work, but you want to see it from different angles um, to get a sense of how it looked in the room. And so much of it is reconstructing that kind of original uh, spatial experience, which we assume that we have, but often when we're writing about a piece of art, we haven't maybe had that experience or haven't yet had that experience. Um, so there's a lot going on there. I don't know that I uh, can say anything more than that, but I can't really think of a way in which there's a direct exchange. Like the, the particular product, the particular way in which these texts are produced obviously affects us. And uh, as in the case of the scaffolding essay, um, a smart production choice can be illuminating, I think. But we often just ignore those things, so I don't know. Sorry?